Boy, if God has filled your heart with joy, then let's give the Lord the biggest hand clap of the day. Jesus, we love you, Lord. You are merciful and mighty in all your works, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for this morning already. And what a great blessing it's been. It's in your name. No other name like Jesus. No other name worth praying in. No other name with power. No other name by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. Say amen together, church. Amen and amen. Please be seated in God's house. I'm glad that you're here. And I'm glad to be up here to bring God's word this morning. Um, I know the church is getting full. And there's a number more of you, I guess, up there in the balcony than are sometimes down here. And we're working quickly. We're working quickly, not only in the parking lot, which I know is a pressing need, as well as getting other building up. Just so that there's room, uh, there's babies on the way. And if those babies are born, which they're gonna, we need some more room. So God is good. And, uh, you know, on the way over, I was thinking I was gonna thank very sincerely as I had planned to do to thank the VBS workers. But as I thought about it, I thought, you know what? I'm not gonna thank the VBS workers. I'm not gonna thank a single soul. And the reason I'm not gonna thank any of them is because they weren't doing the work for me. Uh, it is not for me to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's for another to say. And all I, what I can say is that it is an honor and a pleasure as the pastor of this church to get to work alongside you. I believe that you do the work that you do because of Jesus, not for me. And I wouldn't have it any other way. And, uh, and for that reason, I'm thankful to work alongside you in this gospel mission that Jesus has given us. And what I can remind us of is that this work is worth it. Amen. It's, it's a good work that we do together. And, and I got to really participate in VBS from the perspective of a father. I was like the least useful person here all week. And uh, wow, what a, what a joy and what an honor. Go ahead and be turning your Bibles, if you would, uh, to Genesis 9, and then find your way to verse 18. You can be finding your way there. There's a handful of new folks in the church, and I just want to remind you, this is, we're a kid-friendly church, if you haven't figured that out already. Uh, make yourself at home here, really. The kids are at home here. And there's the bathrooms, there's the kitchen, if you need to go into the kitchen. There's a refrigerator in there, even if you need to keep some snacks in there for your kids. Uh, use that. The kids are welcome here, they really are. And, uh, and we want them to learn to know the Word of God just like you, so... It's not like we're going to shoo all the kids out of here just so we can have a silent time in here. No, it's, it's all right. It's all right that we be a family together in here and the kids are part of that. So Genesis chapter 9. If you don't have a hard copy Bible, which in general I recommend, you can use your phone to get there. If you just need to Google it, Genesis chapter 9. And we'll be going onward into chapters 10 and 11 as well today. But I heard this great story that I wanted to share with you. It was of a boy who had a father whose occupation was that of a sailor. And this boy just loved what his dad did. His dad did local sailing, so he didn't have to be gone for many months at a time. So this boy just grew up with such a positive understanding of sailing, and he wanted to grow up to be just like his dad to become a sailor. When this boy reached his early teen years, the father had already owned this small sailboat, and the father said, son, it's time for you to come out, and on the weekends when I'm home, I'm going to take you out on this boat. And I'm going to start to teach you sailing so that by the time you graduate high school when you're 18, you'll be well-equipped and ready and you'll be marketable as a, in the market of sailors and you'll, you'll know well what to do. And so it was the case on the weekends, they would take the small sailboat out 
uh, nighttime storms, it didn't matter. The father wanted the son to be experienced in all of these things so that he would be ready and experienced in the things of sailing. And as the boy began to learn the art of sailing from his father, he began to notice, because of course he was observing and listening to all of the words that the father had to say, and what he noticed is that everything that his father said would continually be validated. Everything that his father would say, the boy would then see them come to pass. He would, the father would say, now you do this, and this sail is going to open up when the wind comes this way, and here's what you need to expect when the wind shifts at this time of the day. And sure enough, that time of the day would come about, and it would happen. Just like the father said, the boy began to trust the father's words because they were always validated consistently. The boy also noticed that even the rigging, the boat, the design of the material and the tackle that they were using to make this sailboat go about, the father would explain the history of it. And the father would say, now son, the reason this rope is twisted this way is because of this reason and the way that the bow and the stern are are formed in the shape they are is because of this kind of choppy water. And, and then the boy also realized that everything having to do with the art of sailing, it was even verified in history that from sailors and generations past would know that these things needed to be such that these sailing vessels would then be able to go about with the maximum amount of efficiency. And what the boy also learned is that everything that the father said, especially when the boy became 18 and he went on to have his own job as a sailor, he knew that everything that his father said was valuable for in the moment. That when he got out and he had his own job, he would remember back to all the things that the father said and it would give him, it would make him valuable in the market of sailors. It would make him a good sailor, one that would help the vessel stay upright in very severe storms. And he just knew that everything that his father said was important even for the future time in which he was. One of the things that I love about the book of Genesis is that it is a kind of experience that you and I get to have where we see our father working and we hear his word such that we can then be equipped. It was not simply for the sake of increased knowledge that the father wanted to teach his son how to sail. It was so that the boy could be a good sailor and know how to do it and know how to do it right. And we see the same thing in the book of Genesis that we see instruction from our father, not just so that we would have an increased intellectual knowledge, which I'm sure is the case if you've been around since we started the book of Genesis, but the really thing that's important is the so that, so that we can navigate the storms of life, so that we know how to live with discernment, so that we know what it is that God ordained as good and right from the very beginning. So my plan this morning, and this really helps me to stay focused on the topic, is to simply show you three understandings that would hopefully build your confidence in the Bible. And again, not simply for the sake of increasing knowledge, but so that we can make a connection between seeing what it is that our Father says and connecting it to the so that. So that we're able to live this life with discernment. So that we're able to live rightly and know what is right and wrong. All of these kinds of things. So if you're in Genesis 9, look to verse 18. You should already be there. And we know that previously Noah and his family have come out of the ark and we're going to see what happens next. We know that they had already offered a sacrifice, which was pleasing to God, that God had already given them some instructions about what this earth was now going to be like. And he gave them some commands to follow. Those were all covered in previous weeks. And then we see what happens next in verse 18. It says, now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Today's going to help if we have some crowd participation. Everyone say Shem. Everyone say Ham, Ham. and everyone say Japheth. Japheth. 
Those three names are important, somewhat because every single one of us are related to those three men. And then it says, and Ham was the father of Canaan. Everybody say Canaan. Canaan's also going to be an important name for you to remember. Verse 19. It says, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the whole earth was populated. So no matter how far back you take your family tree, it starts back with these three fellows. Verse 20. And it says, and Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. And then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. That's the biblical way of saying he got naked. Verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, cursed be Canaan. Now that's interesting because it was Ham that obviously sinned against him and Canaan being his son, Noah says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all of the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Now, if you are first visiting our church or maybe you've never heard this before, you think that's bogus and crazy. People don't live that many years. In fact, they did. And as a matter of fact, there's a great explanation as to why that occurred. So if you weren't around when we discussed this a number of weeks ago, come talk to me after the service and I'll give you the explanation as to exactly why people did very reasonably live that long. So in this story, you have Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah, and Canaan, who is the son of Ham. Noah begins to plant a vineyard. He becomes a farmer, which I understand probably would be a nice occupation to have after however many years it's been that he's built the ark and all the time on the flood water. The idea of being a farmer kind of sounds nice. But he builds this vineyard, he plants this vineyard, and then he makes wine, and then he gets drunk from it. Now, just as a side note for all the believers in the room today, just remember something that kind of occurred to me, uh, both the sin of Adam and Eve and of this terrible sin of drunkenness that Noah has committed himself to all have to do with food and drink. And I just wonder how lax we are in today's world about things of food and drink. And yet we see food and drink being things that the devil tempts people with greatly. So, so let that sink in just a little bit and let us be wise moving forward in our Christian walk. And then, of course, Noah gets drunk, and then he gets naked. This is not uncommon. People, when they're drunk, lose their inhibition. They lose their wisdom. They lose their sanity to many respects. And then there, of course, is this Ham seeing his father naked, and his response is obviously different than that of Shem and Japheth. Now, we don't know all of the intricate details of this story, but what we do know is that Ham's attitude towards seeing his father naked was something of a very, very sinful nature. We don't know what all that means. We just know that sin was involved with it. No question. That is what definitely is clear from the verses that we read. And it's something that's important to remember because some people have allowed their imaginations to go certain places of maybe what Ham did. I think perhaps it was just the fact that he saw his father naked and he was lax about it. You see, back in ancient times like that, modesty was taken way, way, way more seriously than it is taken today. I think that just perhaps 
it was Ham having kind of a flippant attitude about seeing his father naked. And it says that he goes out of the tent and he tells his two brothers. Rather than seeing what it was, looking away in shame and not looking and covering his father out of respect, he, he perhaps had this flippant attitude about, hey, guess, what's, guess what dad, condition dad is in right now. But the attitude of Shem and Japheth was very different. They placed this robe, this clothing on their shoulders, and they walk backwards into the tent. And probably until they feel their feet bump the back of dad's bed and they throw it over his body and they walk out very respectfully. They didn't sin against their father in any kind of way. Now, the common question that I think is a good question people say is, well, why Noah then is foretelling in this prophecy of a way in which God is going to curse Canaan, the father of Ham? And I think Christians have rightly asked, well, why didn't he curse Ham and why not Canaan? And I don't want to pretend like I know the exact answer, but I just want you to consider for a moment. Probably most all of us, maybe probably all of us, you think of someone you know and you see their life, you see their family, and you see their children getting ready to turn out worse than them. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes you'll look at a young person, and I'm not talking about unruly, very young people. I'm talking about teenagers. You see this direction in life. You see this rebellion. And you can just, from a fly-on-the-wall perspective, you see a family and you just think, yeah, I can, you can almost guarantee the way in which Barring God does, some, God does something miraculous, you can almost write out the history of this young person is going to follow in even worse footsteps than the parents laid out for them. And perhaps that is the case here that God, that Noah knew and God also, of course, knew that Canaan was going to go in this lewd, disrespectful, sinful kind of way, one way or the other. We know that God was just in the dealings as Noah in this prophetic way is foretelling of what is to come of Canaan, the son of Ham, ultimately becoming a servant of Shem and Japheth, we know that that was obviously a just and right judgment. And you say, well, preacher, did that come to pass? Did Canaan and his descendants ultimately become servants of Shem and Japheth and their descendants? And the answer is yes. I'm not going to turn to it, but this can be your reading assignment among many others, hopefully in the scriptures. I encourage you to read this week, Joshua chapter nine. Note that, note that down this week, read it this week. And in Joshua chapter 9, you're going to see the fulfillment of this prophecy coming true. And if you know your Bibles really well, you'll know that in Joshua chapter 9, Joshua's leading the army of Israel. They're going about and God is using them as a rod with which to spank other nations and other people for the very wicked things that they had done. God's people were very powerful. God was fighting on behalf of God's people. Now the Gibeonites, who were descendants of Ham and therefore Canaan, living in this land, there's this workaround. They saw all that God was doing. And I'll let you read the whole story for yourself, but long story short, they didn't want to be on the receiving end of God fighting for Israel. And so they pretend to be these vagabond travelers, pretending not to be the people against which God was coming. And they come to the Israelites and torn up clothes and old moldy bread saying, oh, we're from a faraway land, even though they were just right across the way, the people against which God was fighting. And they say, we'll be your servants, all these things. Joshua and the army, they end up finding out that these people had played a trick on them. One way or the other, they do become the servants of God's people. Just like God said would happen, the thing that we are seeing here that I'd like for you to notice is that God's word is validated consistently. Something that ought to bring about for us an increased confidence in the Bible is knowing that God's word is constantly, constantly, constantly validating itself. 
Now, this little example we've seen is one of thousands, many others that you probably can think of even right now. You think of the Babylonian exile that God's people were in, was foretold of, and then it happened just like God said it was going to happen. Christmas, the first ever Christmas, happened as it was foretold of by the prophets, happened then, thereafter, just like God said it was going to. Now, interestingly enough, in these kinds of things, people may not understand all the intricate details. For example, Ham and Canaan probably did not understand, along with Shem and Japheth, they probably didn't understand all of the exact intricacies of how God was going to bring about his plan. But lo and behold, they could bet their bottom dollar that Ham and Canaan and their descendants were going to become the servants of the descendants of the other two brothers, just as was the case for the first Christmas. They probably didn't understand as the Old Testament prophets were prophesying of what the first Christmas was going to be like of a sinless savior being born of a virgin. They probably didn't understand all the intricacies, but they knew, lo and behold, you could bet your bottom dollar that it was going to happen, that there was going to be a virgin that would conceive and give forth the savior of the world. So was the case for Easter. Or how about Revelation, which many of you are studying right now? Things that are, we're, we're still in the middle of this plan of redemptive history. Things that we're marching towards. All of those of you, the many in here that are studying Revelation right now, you may not understand all the intricate details of it, but you can rest assured, you can know that God's word is validated constantly and consistently throughout his word, that it's going to happen. You may not understand all the small details, but of the big picture that's coming of Christ's victorious reign and him having utter dominion over all evil and over all things, it's going to happen. Say amen. Now, we see that God's word is validated consistently, just like it was for that young sailor boy who saw his father's word. The father said it was going to happen like this, that the wind was going to behave the certain kind of way this time of day. And sure enough, he found his father's word to be validated time and time again. And when you become familiar with the scriptures, you'll see those same things all the time. When you see a promise being made in scripture, look for the fulfillment of it somewhere else in scripture and you'll find it. And your heart will become, begin to become confident in the Bible. Now, here's one little extra thing free of charge for us today. Uh, I've heard it said before that the Bible is a made-up historical document for the purpose of controlling people. Now, if that is the case, why, oh, why do they take Noah, who is supposed to be a hero of the faith, in the hall of faith as in Hebrews chapter 11, this great figure of faith and trust in God, the one through which God was going to preserve him and his family through a judgment of the entire earth. Why, if the Bible was simply a means through which to control people and made up in the imagination, in the imagination of the human mind, why would, it then, why would people portray Noah to then do this embarrassing, sinful, horrible thing of getting drunk and then naked in his tent, doing something as foolish? The reason is, is because the Bible is real. It's dealing with real people. It's dealing with real people that deal with real sin, that have real struggles like you and I. This is not a false fictitious book. This is dealing with real people. If it was the case that people wanted to write the Bible as a thing of fiction for the purpose of controlling people, you would never put many of the details that you find in it, including a hero of the faith getting naked in his tent in a drunken stupor. The Bible is real. Look to Genesis 10 
and we move onward. Now, this chapter, if you're familiar with it, is essentially an entire chapter of genealogy. Somebody say, oh, yay, we get to go through an entire genealogy today. Now, this is a great chapter if you need some nicknames for some nincompoops in your life because you're going to find names like Hazar, Maveth, and Joktan. Those are just some of the few, many of the names that you'll find in there. And we're not going to read the whole chapter partially because I have trouble pronouncing all of these names, but also because for our purposes this morning, as I believe God has led me to to teach the church how to be confident in his word, we're going to pick out some details that I believe are going to be not just interesting, but massively helpful as our confidence is being built in the Bible. And I'm going to simply give you the next one here, is that it is verified historically. The Bible is verified historically. I'm going to give you a few that maybe you haven't heard before. Verse 1, go ahead and look at it. It says, now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog. Now let's stop there. Not getting too terribly far yet. Uh, Magog is probably a name that you're familiar with if you've heard the Bible preached before. You know that the prophet Ezekiel talks about Magog as a wicked people out of the north is the understanding of that name. Also in Revelation, chapter 20 particularly, you hear this name of Magog. And it's been understood throughout long time now that this place of Magog is supposed to be somewhere in the Russian area. Okay, uh, It's been understood through tradition that the sons of Japheth predominantly settled in that area in Russia. Now you might be interested to know that there is a physical structure in the northern border of China that kind of separates between China and some of the southern regions of Russia. Now, you might be interested to know that you probably think of what this thing is called. This is called the Wall of China. But you'll be interested to know that certain areas of this wall a long time ago used to be called the Wall of Magog. Now, this was common naming practice in ancient times, and that when a wall was built to protect a certain nation, in today's world, like, if, we, if you were to build a fence around your property, you might call it, for example, if I built a fence around my property, I would call it the Sweeterman fence. But let's say my next door neighbors, this is not their name, but let's say my next door neighbor's name was Smith. In ancient times, I wouldn't call it the fence of the Sweetermans. I would call it the fence of the Smiths because it's them I'm trying to keep out. And so was the case in northern China there with southern Russia. They became a debased moral people, the Magogites as they were. And China obviously wanted to keep them out. It was called at one point in time the Wall of Magog. So the next time that you're tempted to just skip over genealogies in the Bible, just know that they help explain some of the physical structures that are standing on the earth right now and the names by which they used to go by. Go ahead and turn, if you would, now look to verse 21 of our chapter 10 there in Genesis, and we'll see something else. Chapter 21, it says, and the children were born also to Shem. Now, just in case you didn't know, Shem is the line through which Jesus is going to come. That's the lineage through which Jesus came. It says, the father of all the children of Eber. Somebody say Eber. The brother of Japheth, the elder. The sons of them were Elam. Asher, Arphaxad. Boy, that's a great name for a neighbor or some animal that you own that you don't like too much. Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. Say Aram. 
Now, you'll also probably be interested to know, have you ever wondered before, you think of the Israelites, they're moving forward, they're many times referenced as the Hebrew people or the Hebrew nation. Well, the root of that word Hebrew comes from this name, Eber, Heber, Hebrew, Eber. That's where the root of that Hebrew name comes from. You see it coming out of that genealogy. That's why they're known as the Hebrew nation throughout scripture. Uh, what about Aram? Aram sounds a bit like Aramaic. And indeed, the name Aramaic, which is one of the predominant languages used in that time, came from that line of Aram. So yet again, we see that even names of things are coming out of these genealogies. Maybe, just maybe, we shouldn't skip over these genealogies. And the next time you're reading through them, let it be a reason for you to study the scriptures deeply and understand where things like Aramaic, which people in the world today call it Aramaic, or Hebrew come from. Uh, something else that I think you'll find interesting and hopefully helpful in becoming confident in the Bible it has been the case throughout history that the devil has had a willful agenda against the Hebrew people, against the line of Shem through which Jesus would come. You see it all throughout the Bible. Think of Pharaoh in Egypt that tried to have all of the baby boys killed. Again, at that point in time, got narrowed down to the line through which Jesus would come. The devil used Pharaoh to try and kill off all of the baby boys. You think of the Philistines that were a a bloodthirsty, wicked people, a warring people against the nation of Israel, against the Hebrew nation. You think of Herod in the first Christmas, again, killing all of the baby boys. You, you see consistently, uh, you, you think of out throughout all of the gospels, even as the devil attempts to kill Christ. Little did he know that our own victory and our own righteous standing with God would be one, through him paying death's penalty of sin, which was what you and I had accrued. But you see all throughout history, the devil being against the lineage through which Jesus would come and did come from. And I would say that nothing really has changed in modern times. The sons of Shem, it is understood, predominantly branched off into two groups of Jews. Perhaps you've heard the name the Ashkenazi Jews, which predominantly settled in Germany area, as well as the Sephardic Jews. They also settled in the Portugal, Spain kind of areas is where those predominant groups settled. Now for generations, there was a big riff between these two groups. Although they had the same heritage, they both came from the line of Shem, the line through which Jesus, our savior would come. They had become culturally different. They dressed different, they talked a little bit different than each other, and, and they, they, they had just become kind of a not good with each other kind of people. But there was an occurrence in the early to mid-1900s that made them largely look past many of their differences. And what it was, was the world's most Jew-hating person came onto the scene of history, which of course was none other than Adolf Hitler caring about all of the things that you think of in the Holocaust. Now, we would understand this act of hating Jews and hating all this work that the devil has been getting at all throughout the course of redemptive history. You would know this to be anti-Semitism or anti-Semitic, hating, Jew-hating kind of person. You'll be interested also to know that anti-Semitic comes from firstly being called anti-Shemitic anti against the line of Shem, against the line through which the Savior would come. 
This has been the story of history, and this has continued on today, even in modern-day history. So therefore, after that, after the events of the Holocaust, the Ashkenazi Jews and the Sephardic Jews predominantly became friends after they began to look over many of their smaller secondary differences because they had been united on the fact that finally the Holocaust was over. And you might imagine how two groups of people would come together and overlook minor secondary things as a result of such a heinous, terrible thing that had happened to both groups of people. So again, I'll remind you that genealogies, they don't just explain physical structures like the wall of China and the things that those things used to be named, but also words that we use like Aramaic and Hebrew, as well as world events like that of the Holocaust. Remembering now that the Bible validates itself in history. That's the point here. It validates itself in history. You can't, if, if you have a knowledge of scripture, you see how everything else in the world makes sense through the lens of scripture, everything. It's impossible for somebody to be well-versed in history and to really know the true events that took place unless you have a deep sense and, and understanding of how the Bible validates everything that you see all throughout history and even things that we're moving towards. And the Bible, even in this genealogy, if you look at verses 8 and 12 of the chapter we're in, you see a mention of a name, Nimrod. We see that not only does the Bible validate itself in history, but even things that we're moving towards. In verses 8 and 12, you'll see of this name Nimrod. We know that he was the king of Babel or Babylon at the time. His name literally means rebel. And we also know that he did many mighty works. He was a very famous, very popular, very winsome king, very wicked, a rebel by the very nature of who it is that he was. And this is foreshadowing of another that the book of Revelation tells us is also the king of Babel or Babylon that also will do mighty works, that is also characterized by lawless rebellion against God. It's the Antichrist. So you see not only in these genealogies that many times we just flip over, go past, not only do they describe physical structures on the earth, words and names of things that we're using this very day, but also looking forward to things that are to come in the same kinds of way, in the same kind of way that we had kind of a heads up, that redemptive history had a heads up of who Jesus would be and what it is that he would do. When you see, think of Joseph and Moses and David, of course, they were not the savior, but they were a picture of the savior. They did the kinds of things. There was a heads up in the plan of redemptive history that God gave people to, to show that what Jesus to come would be like. And so it is for the case of the Antichrist, of that of the personification of evil himself, that we have a heads up of what the Antichrist would be. So I hope you're seeing, I hope your confidence in the Bible is being built even right now, as you see that the Bible verifies itself throughout history in a complete and very, very comprehensive kind of way. Now, the last thing I'll leave you with this morning, look to Genesis chapter 11 now. And the last thing that we'll see, I hope, I hope you've noticed that perhaps we're just a little bit like in the illustration of the boy learning sailing from his father. As the father would explain, here's why things are the way things are. And the, and the boy would see and understand that, yes, that what the father said about the history makes sense, even in current time, that, it, that, the, that the instruction from the father, father validated everything in history and even the things that were taking place in the current moment. And you and I, hopefully, as you see your father's words, are becoming confident of the same. Look to verse 1, Genesis chapter 11, the last one we'll look at today. 
It says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there, and they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth, which, if you remember, is exactly what God had instructed them to do, to fill the earth and subdue it, to be fruitful and multiply. And here the people are saying, Let's, let's stay in one spot and make a name for ourselves, they say. Look to verse 5. It says, But the Lord came down to see the city, Kind of interesting that the city that they said was going to reach the heavens, he has to come down to look at. I just kind of like that. To see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us, us being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinity, finding counsel within themselves, come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So God gives the initial instructions to Noah and his family Fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. And then the people do as people commonly do. Want to stay together in one spot. And they want to make a name for themselves. And they do it in a place called Shinar. Which is understood to be modern day Iraq. And interestingly enough. You hear this talk of obviously. It would take a lot of brick. And a lot of mortar that they were using. Asphalt to make this mortar. And interestingly enough. If you were to go over to Iraq. There are plenty of places like this that are like asphalt pits even today is where they would have built this massive tower of Babel. They would have needed to build it in a place that had the resources to be able to build it. But the thing that's, I would say, even much more important than understanding that all of these things is to understand that God's word is valuable today. It is valuable today. Think of the lesson that is learned from this short story that we've seen in the beginning of Genesis 11. God giving instruction, the people disobeying. You see the tendency of the human heart. You have the response of the people. Well, let us make a name for ourselves. I've heard it be said before, and I believe it's absolutely the case, that we are never more like demons than when we have this attitude of, look at me. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's, let's raise ourselves up. It says in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before a fall. And that's exactly what you seeing, see taking place here. What a great lesson. What a great lesson for you and I to see the tendency of the human heart, to see God's instruction, to see his correction of the problem. What a great lesson to, for us, like the boy who hears the instruction of the sailing father and the boy knows that he's going to need that instruction to give him the, the, the so that he knows how to live and to sail. We see the same instruction from our father in the book of Genesis just in this kind of way. It is valuable today, church. Say amen. Because it is indeed the case that our confidence ought to be built and strengthened in the Bible, seeing that it is valuable today. We need it today. We need everything that is in it. I love what St. Patrick said, who 
interestingly, you'll St. Patrick's Day actually has very little to, historically has very little to do with leprechauns or the color green or beer, but St. Patrick was actually a Christian and listen to what he said in one of his prayers. You've heard me say this before and notice how this is so utterly different. Maybe, maybe just perhaps before I read this, I'll just throw this thought into your brain. Maybe just perhaps St. Patrick, the son had gotten some instruction from his father through the word and he knew that it was something that he needed today, which is why he says that what I'll read to you next, quote, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lay down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. What a, what a good lesson to be learned. You see the opposite being true of the people in that time as they rebelled against God and built this Tower of Babel. They disobeyed God, but you see what is true and right, a lesson well learned. Understanding that the Bible is valuable today. You need it. You need it for your marriage. Say amen. We need it to know how to act justly. Our nation could use a big old dose of scriptural truth. Say amen. We need the Bible. So what I'm going to ask you in this consideration is we now come to a close, I would even say, of Genesis chapter 11, going through more genealogies that certainly I want you to read. And I just want to remind you, God being faithful in his promises, continuing to let your heart be built in the confidence of what our father has said. Genesis chapter 11 ends with the mention of two names that you'll probably be familiar with, Abram and Sarai. We're moving along, aren't we, through the book of Genesis. It started back, you remember, in the beginning, even of Genesis chapter 3, when God promises the Redeemer and Rescuer that would come and crush the head of Satan. And you see God bringing this plan along, bringing it along, bringing it along. And now we've gotten to the end of Genesis chapter 11, where there's this mention of the names Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, again, through which the lineage of Jesus would come, the Savior of the world. If you're thankful for Jesus, say amen. So here's, here's the as worshipers come, and I would say the rest of us, go ahead and stand. I, I want to give us this as we all stand in preparation to close here. What is your so that in all of this? Because it, it, to simply become hearers of the word and not doers, that would be a fail of all this. To simply increase knowledge and not increase obedience and, and a fervency to carry out the will of our Father, like that would be a fail. But what would be a success is for you and I in this moment to consider what our Father has said and ask ourselves the question, what is the so that for us? The son who was learning the art of sailing did so that he knew how to be a well-equipped sailor. You and I similarly need to, even in a more important way, see the words of the Father so that you and I can be well-equipped soldiers in the kingdom of God. We've been talking about this whole kingdom soldier thing all week. It's what I've been thinking about. But as true as it is for the kids, it is true for us too, church. Consider what is the so that? Let me just ask this beckoning question. If your confidence in the Bible and God's word, the words of our Father, were like a hundred times more confident than they are right now in your own heart, how would you live differently this very day or this very week? That's the so that. 
You see the words of the Father, your confidence is built in it so that you can live in this particular kind of way because your confidence in the word of God has become so strong because you know that it's verified in all of history. You know that everything he says is going to come to pass. You see it consistently so all around you have faith and trust in his word as true. And how does that make you live? Maybe that means you need to get baptized because you need to walk in obedience to the scriptures. Maybe it means you need to actually come to Christ today and give him your life. You you need to receive by faith. You need to trust in this gift of grace that he has won for us and you need to become a Christian. That that literally may be the case for some of you, maybe many of you. Uh, I know for me personally, something that God has been convicting me of is, and I just ask myself the question, how would I live differently if my confidence was just way more strong in my own heart than it is right now. How would I live differently? As I've considered that and meditated on that, as I prayed about bringing that same beckoning question to all of you, the answer has been very clear to me is that I would be way more bold with gospel proclamation, way more bold. I would not have this sense in my mind that we need to have some kind of program or strategy of of a way to carry the gospel torch and the light of the gospel to all of these intel folks that are gonna be coming in in the next few years. I, I I would cease thinking of man's devising and plans. And I would say, you know what? If I just had, if my confidence was that much stronger, I would just proclaim the gospel. I would, I would communicate it in love. I would communicate it in clarity, but I would not be ashamed in public spaces to say, people are sinful rebels against God and as such are deserving of his judgment to pour upon them but because Christ is good and because he is merciful he paid the debt for us in his own life's blood and now offers redemption whosoever will let him come and drink freely from the waters of life are you going to do that intel worker question mark I would, if, I, if my confidence was so much more than it is in the Bible, I would just become that much more bold in gospel proclamation. What is it for you? And this is where we collectively ask for the Holy Spirit to make that known in our hearts and that we go from this place and be obedient. Amen. Pray with me.